Amen. So, review. We remember that Isaiah is largely about the old Jerusalem being judged and the emergence of the new Jerusalem, um, at least in Isaiah's prophecy. The new Jerusalem would not emerge until A.D. 70 in that, in that first century. <clears throat> and, uh, and that is a complicated concept that most people do not grow up understanding. And so if you're new to it, don't feel bad. You'll get it as we go through. But the, the remnant, what is the remnant, by the way? Just the review. A small group of believers in a largely apostate nation. The remnant um, will, in the, in, the, in the book of Isaiah, the remnant will pass from the Old into the New, the, from the Old Testament into the New Testament, or from the Old Order, the Old Creation into the New Creation. That remnant will pass through. And when that remnant passes through out of the old creation into the new creation. What is the technical term for that? No? Exodus. That's right. That is the exodus. That is the ultimate exodus of which exodus is a type of. And it's the remnant that leads out of the old creation into the new. And who is the remnant's Moses? Jesus. And what is the remnant's promised land? The, the new earth. The entire earth. The new earth. And so... This is, this is um, us just reviewing some of what you've learned about typology and how to read the Old Testament. And there's a lot to it. It is complicated, but that is largely what the book of Isaiah is about. That's why you see prophecy of destruction on Israel, but then a future day in which Israel will bear fruit and shine. Make sense? All right, so we're going to see it again in chapter 5, but this time it's going to be with, the, with a song and with an illustration of a vineyard. So let's go ahead and jump into verse 1 and learn our own personal redemptive history. Here we go. Let me sing for my beloved, Isaiah says. So Isaiah is going to sing a prophetic song for his beloved. His beloved means his friend, and God is his friend. And so he's going to sing a song for his God, his friend. My love song concerning his vineyard, God's vineyard. My beloved, that is God, had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. And really, this is a great devotional, by the way, when you, when you do your own personal devotions. You ought to read Isaiah 5. It's very intimate and very relational, very personal. And I think, it's, I think it's interesting that Isaiah, who you will see in the next chapter, was taken up, raptured up into the heavenlies and given a, a picture of the heavenly throne room like which, uh, which other prophet? John, that's right, John. <clears throat> Good. And which other one? Moses, remember Moses taken up as well, right? They're raptured up, and, um, <clears throat> and uh, Isaiah was raptured up into the heavenlies, and he saw the cherubim and the throne, and he saw the heavenly worship service and all of that, and even he calls God his beloved, his friend. I think that's very interesting, right? Because Christianity is not just a religion, it's also a relationship, right? That's a very true statement. And is every religion have a personal, relational, friendly God? No, of course not. Of course not. But Christianity does have a friendly God who longs to be your friend and who promises you fellowship and personal intimacy with him. Amen? That's good news. Where in the Bible does God promise friendship with his, with his people? Abraham, that's right. Wow, that is good. I mean, it promises it all over the Bible. But when you really, you, it starts 
or at least, uh, I mean, it starts with Adam, but it's uh, heavily renewed under Abraham. And what is the prophetic promise that he makes to Abraham that is a promise of friendship, at least in part? I will be God to you. I will be your God and you will be my people. That's a prom- that is a covenantal promise of relationship. So why do we believe that God offers us relationship? Because God promised it. Because he says it over and over again. Why do we believe Christianity is a relationship? Because God promised it. Right, so when and saying the same thing in another way, we say Christianity is a relationship, but what is the structure of that relationship? The covenant. The covenant is the structure of that relationship. What is the structure of the relationship between a husband and a wife? Covenant. What is the structure of the relationship between a father and son? Covenant. What is the structure of the relationship between citizens and a nation? Covenant. What is the structure of the relationship between elders and church members? Covenant. Between members and members? Covenant. Covenant is how God structures the world. Not individualism, not collectivism, but covenant. And every covenant has terms and conditions, a.k.a. laws, and blessings and cursings for faithful obedience and cursings for apostasy. Make sense? And the greatest blessing of all is I will be God to you and you will be my people. I will be your God and you will be my people. I will be God to you. But it wouldn't be right for me to not finish that verse. You know, sometimes it's important to finish the verse. I will be God to you and to your children after you. That's right. That's why I believe God has a relationship with my children. Even before they can cognitively um, consent to that relationship. See, we believe in a religion of covenant, not consent. You understand what I mean? All right. We believe in sex and marriage is right because it is not because it's consensual, although it is. But because deeper than that, it is covenantal. We believe you were called covenantally, not consensually. Although it is consensual, but it's covenant first. Right? Does that make sense? It's very important. Consensual religion is individualistic. Very radically individualistic. We believe in covenant. We believe in covenant. And so God promises that relationship to you and to your children. So raise them up believing that Christianity is a relationship and that God wants to have a relationship with them. He promises to have a relationship with them. That way they can respond to his initiation, his init, not initiation, his initiative with faith. Make sense? Amen. Good. Very, very important. He will sing a song for his beloved and it seems preposterous and presumptuous, presumptuous to call God your beloved, but not in a weird Jesus is my boyfriend, modern day Christianity stuff, but Jesus is your friend, as the Doobie Brothers? No, he's all right with them, yeah. All right, moving on to verse 2. No, Jesus is a friend is that strange YouTube video. Yeah, yeah, that's different. All right, moving on to verse 2. What did God do with this vineyard that he he, uh, loved and that he had and that he owned? And that he put on a very fertile hill. What did he do? Verse 2. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes. So he did everything that was necessary to have his vineyard produce abundant 
vine, abundant grapes. What are grapes for? Wine, because God wants to be merry and to enjoy his people. That's exactly right. And he did everything possible for this to take place. He protected them. He fertilized them. He moved the stones out. He did everything. But it yielded wild grapes, which probably means nasty, nasty grapes. (laughs) Bitter grapes that no one would want to drink or to eat. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah... Judge between me and my vineyard. So now the, the voice changes and it's God speaking. Okay, it was uh, Elijah singing a song on behalf of God. Now it is God speaking. And he's speaking to Jerusalem, the capital city, and to the people of Judah. Right? <coughs> Judge between me and my vineyard. You decide. You, I report you decide. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes... Why did it yield wild grapes? So what else, could, what else can I do? All right. <clears throat> Therefore, verse 5, and we'll be done reading in a second here, but verse 5. So because there was nothing else I can do, and I did everything that I possibly could to, to have a, a productive vineyard, and it produced wild grapes, what I will do, and now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured, and I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the cloud that they rain no rain upon it. All right, so that's a story of Israel's history, really. Um, <clears throat> God planted them. They did not produce fruit, and so he destroyed them, right? Um, But there's some nuance there, which we're going to get to. Verse 7, look at verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. So who's the vineyard? Israel is the vineyard. And the men of Judah. So Israel and Judah, by the way, are two names for the people of of Israel. Um, It's like the southern and the northern kingdom. Um, That's who the vineyard is. They are his pleasant, pleasant planting, and he looked for justice but behold, bloodshed. So what is the one, what are one of the reasons God judges a nation? Bloodshed. Right? For righteousness he looked for, but behold, an outcry. That means oppression. Right? People were, his church was being persecuted, and the righteous poor were being persecuted, etc. All right. So if we stop there, then what? What would, what would be the consequences of that being the end of the Bible story? Condemnation, no hope, keep going. There would be no gospel, everyone goes to hell. And, and, and the promise of redemption would never come true. That's right, exactly right. <clears throat> there would be no Messiah, there would be no Jesus. If uh, the Assyrians come and they destroy the northern kingdom in 722, and scatter all the Jews. They're no longer to be found. Um, then in 586 B.C., the Babylonians come, and they destroy everybody else and take them into exile. If God would not have preserved a remnant, there would be no Jesus, and we would all go to hell. You understand that? Not only that, there, his promises would fall through. His promises would fall through. He would not be faithful. He would not be successful. So how is this vine... Here's a question for, the, for this evening. Now, really think about it. This is a history lesson and a theology lesson tonight. How can this vineyard ever produce fruit? What would need to happen? 
something new, some new work, right? God would have to um, do something great to turn this uh, terrible vineyard into a fruitful vineyard. Amen? All right. So these are the three things that have to happen, and that's what we're going to get to now. First, there has to be a dramatic pruning. So imagine with me, we have a, a vineyard, all right, or a, or a great vine. What would a dramatic pruning look like? It would, t- it would turn it into basically a stump, all right? And, and anybody who has seen vines, you know that's oftentimes what they do every year. They cut off all the branches, and it goes back down to the one main line, the one main branch. So there would need to be a dramatic pruning, Now, when does God take out the shears and dramatically prune Israel? 722, Assyria, 586, Babylon, and then eventually 70 AD with the Romans. And he dramatically prunes them, kills many of them, decimates the temple, and rejects them and scatters scatters them to the four winds. But look at Isaiah chapter 5. We're in 5. Go down to verse 26. Here's how he's going to do it. He will raise a signal for nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth. And behold, quickly, speedily they come. None is weary, none stumbles, none slumbers or sleeps. Not a waistband is loose, not a sandal strap broken. Their arrows are sharp, all their bows bent. Their horses, excuse me, I got to sneeze. All right, I'm trying not to. Their arrows are sharp. All their bows bent, their horses' hooves seem like flint, and their wheels like a whirlwind. So do you see? How is God going to radically prune the vineyard? How is he going to judge them? He's going to send armies from foreign nations. And, of course, Daniel talks about, he, Daniel lists them. What's the first main, the main one? Babylon, right? Persia, the Greece, Greeks, then the Romans. But he says, but in Daniel, he says, and this is not a vineyard illustration in Daniel, he says, but in the king, times of the kings of the Romans, I will, I will establish my kingdom. I will do something new. So now let's go ahead to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew 23, look at verse 36. Now y'all track with me. I'm, I'm building up to something, and I'm trying to help you understand some things in a new way. But look at Matthew 23, look at verse 36. Anyone want to read that for us? You got it? Go ahead. Tori's got it. Verse, starting in verse 36, and you're going to go through to verse 38. This is Jesus speaking. It's Jesus speaking to the religious leaders of Israel of his day. That's right. Now, look what Jesus is saying. He lists all kinds of destruction in Matthew 23, and he says, Truly, all these things will come upon this generation. He's talking to the people that lived in his time. He goes on poetically as a prophet. What does he say? See. There you go. See, your house is left to you desolate. He goes on in the next chapter, Matthew 24, and the disciples ask him about the temple. And he says, all these stones will be destroyed and none will be left standing. And it will all happen within this generation. Jesus prophetically warns of a great pruning that is about to take place. 
of the vineyard. Are y'all tracking so far? Everyone with me? Now, when, it, when there is a massive pruning, is that the same thing as digging up the root? Now, what would a full rejection of Israel look like? Yes, and, and covenantally, what would that mean? If you po- that's a poetic, you know, digging up the root. What would that mean as far as covenant and theology? He, w- he would be breaking his side of the, of the covenant of grace. It's a covenant of grace. But what would it mean uh, for the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? It would, I'm sorry, what? He wouldn't keep those promises, and, and his relationship with the seed of Abraham would be totally over with. You understand what I mean? His, the, the promises to Abraham would be done. That's what digging up the root would look like. All right, all that we tried to do, all the promises I made to Adam and to Abraham and to Noah and to Shem and to Jacob and, and David, all of that is off. Root is gone. Salt the field. Everyone goes to hell. All right? But that's not what pruning is, isn't it? Pruning is different than digging up the root. But he does a dramatic pruning with these foreign nations, Roman, Rome being the last one. But he, rem- he leaves a little bit. He leaves a little bit on there, and we call them the remnant. In the New Testament, what are some names of the remnant? Mary, Joseph, Anna, Simeon, the 12 disciples, right? The 70 disciples, all the people in the upper room, a little tiny remnant of people that still believe, that believe in God and are true. The shepherds outside of Bethlehem, right? So first of all, you have to have a major pruning. He does that, bang. Second thing you have to have is you have to have a change of leadership or the change of the caretakers of the vineyard. And, and Jesus gives the parable to the, to the religious leaders of his day. He says that my father had a, vi- a vineyard, and it, wasn't, it, it was producing crops, but the rulers of that vineyard wouldn't pay the, the tribute. And so I sent servants to them to collect. And what did they do to the servants? Y'all know? Beat them, killed them. So I said, you know what? I'll send my son, and they will respect him, and they'll finally pay tribute. And what did they do? They said, they conspired together, and they said, we will kill the son and take the inheritance for ourselves. Right? And they killed the son. And then at that moment, Matthew says that the Pharisees knew that Jesus was talking about them. And Jesus says after that, he says, you wicked and perverse generation, basically. Uh, I will, the kingdom will be taken from you and given to another. And it will be given to those who will work the vineyard, faithful servants who will pay tribute. Now, who, of course, is that? It's the Gentile nations, the Gentile nations. So we have understanding the vineyard analogy and understanding redemptive history. A major pruning is going to come. God is pruning Israel, Assyria pruning, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, finally. But there's a small little remnant that remains. And then the care of the vineyard is transferred over to a whole nother people. Your house is desolate. The kingdom is taken from you and given to that of the Gentiles. But then there's one other thing that has to happen. All right. And that is the offshoot of Jesse has to come. And you all know what an offshoot is or uh, the branch, the Nazarene, the twig. So after a major pruning, chop down, then emerges in the spring, in the in the renewal of the season, a small new growth. Right? It begins as a mustard seed. So I'm mixing metaphors here. Or it begins as a rock which comes out of heaven, which man did not create, but created by God. And it, it, it grows up new. 
and that is the offshoot of Jesse. Is Jesus, he's the offshoot, is he Jewish? Is he of the line of Abraham? Why is that important? It has to be from David, has to be from Abraham. Why, though? Why? Because the point is that God is keeping his promises. God is faithful to his people. If he were to dig up the root, he wouldn't be faithful. If he were to chop the whole thing down and let it die, he wouldn't be faithful. But a heavy pruning, he's still faithful. And then the offshoot comes up. That's Jesus. He's a Jew. He's, he's in the lineage of David. He has to be. because That's why they have all those genealogies. Because he's proving the faithfulness of God over the history of hum- humanity. You see what I'm saying? But then that new um, covenantal Adam, that new man, Jesus, that new um, shoot, he is rejected by um, Israel, by and large, and gives the kingdom to the, to the Gentiles, and largely the Gentiles believe. And covenantally, the Gentiles are then what? How does Paul describe it? Grafted in to the root, through the offshoot. Which is why we, it's, we say in Scripture that now Israel and, and, and the nation, Gentile nations are one. There's no longer any Jew, nor Gentile, nor Greek. See? Because there was a Jewish person from Abraham who grew up, and we are covenanted to him through faith. And he has the sap of the Holy Spirit in him so that he isn't like this old vineyard. He can bear fruit. And, and then we are the branches extending out, and, and through him and the Holy Spirit it comes out, and we bear fruit of the Holy Spirit. Right? But what's the root? Do we have a root? Or is Jesus a floating vine? Like uh, what are those flowers that can grow in the air? Yeah. <laughs> what, Addy? Yes, he's not a succulent or anything like that. There is a root. It's the covenant. It's the covenant to Abraham. It's Israel. It's the covenant to Abraham. He comes up out of them. We are grafted into him. And when we are grafted into him, if we abide in him, what does he promise us to do? We will bear much fruit. And he says, any, but then he also says, any branch in me that does not bear fruit will receive a pruning. Any branch in me that does not bear fruit will be taken off and thrown in the fire. See that mean? So honestly, he still prunes the tree today the same way he did back then. Right. All right. Let's go. Let's recap some of that. And and I, I hopefully y'all are paying attention. This is actually very, very important. But I know that this is not like uh, this may not be exciting to you, but it's very uh, theologically important. The same exact metaphor is is used with stone building the stone that the builders rejected. OK, so they're trying to build. We're building Israel. OK, we're building up the temple. We're building up the old covenant order. And they're pulling rocks out of, out of the quarry, all these Jewish rocks. All right, they're building. Then they get to this one rock, same quarry. We don't like this one. They toss it. All right, the stone that the builders rejected, uh, now it becomes a chief cornerstone of a new temple. Is it connected to the old? Yes, it's the, it's that, it's the stone that the builders rejected. It's the same thing as... Uh, a heavy pruning down to the root with an offshoot that begins a new, bl- a new blossoming tree. So can y'all picture that in your mind? 
a tree growing, it's dead, it has no fruit, has no life, you know, chop it down, an offshoot comes out that has life and begins to blossom and, and all these other nations are grafted into it and bear fruit. So you can see why, now maybe you can see this is why it's so negative in the Old Testament, but why it's so positive in the New Testament, because there's something new. You understand what I mean? When people read the Old Testament, they're like, oh, you think things are getting better? Don't you see nations just apostatize? Israel's always falling. Yes, that's because this hadn't happened yet. Because the Holy Spirit sap was not flowing through in the same exact way. <clears throat> Jesus says it like this. He says in John 15, 1, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Amen? Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. So when you're disciplined in your life, what's that? It's pruning, that's right. Good. So has God rejected Israel? Let's follow this theological conversation. Has God rejected Israel? Did God replace Israel? Contrary to the Amil position of what's called replacement theory, Israel is not replaced. Is Israel rejected? No. Um, has God started completely over again with a new, a new plant? No, Israel is not rejected. How do we know Israel is not rejected? Because Jesus was a Jew, that's a big one, right? And so were all the disciples, right? And so were, was that small remnant at the very beginning. Listen to Romans 11, verse 1. I ask then, Paul says, has God rejected his people? By no means. For him to reject his people would be to reject the Abrahamic covenant. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people, whom he foreknew. Now he's explaining a little bit of the secret things of God. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Saying, don't you know that back, even back in the days of Elijah, everyone was apostate, Right? And Elijah says, Lord, they've killed your prophets and they've demolished your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. What's Elijah's concern? And they're trying to kill me, which means I'm the only one left, God. Like your promises are going to be null and void. Your covenant faithfulness is going to be shown to the whole world to be uh, a fraud. All the promises to the patriarchs will die when they kill me. I'm the only one. Right? (laughs) <laughs> and he's really sad about that and upset. And what does God say to him? He says, no, no, I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal, right? So too at the present time, Paul says, there's a remnant chosen by grace. So Paul's saying he hasn't rejected Israel. Uh, he has heavily pruned it, right? But it, it, Israel is still there. The root is still there, right? Now, I believe this is how we understand the gate metaphor, which is always... the has always been uh, always bothered me <coughs> Jesus says the way to destruction is narrow and the way of life is narrow and few there are that find it right does that mean there's only gonna be a few people in heaven does that mean that no it means that there's going to be a small group the remnant that passes through but then as it branches out many will come from east and west to dine with Abraham. Make sense? All right. What? Everything that I just said or that last sentence? 
What do you mean? What's the that? You mean the everything that I said so far in the whole class? Or just that last sentence? <laughs> yeah, Jesus is looking at the Jews and he's preaching to the Jews and he's like, guys, the way to salvation is narrow and only few of you are going to pass through. No, no, Jesus, Jesus, that's what Jesus said to them. But it, that seems to me, if I, if I take that to mean forever and ever and ever, ever, only a few are going to be saved, that most people go to hell, that, that contradicts everything else I've read in the Bible, that the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth like the waters cover the, the sea, you know, things like that. Like your, your offspring will be like the stars of the heaven, but I thought it was a few. No, it's because Jesus is talking about there's going to be a remnant. This generation's going to die. Only a few of you are going to make it. Um, so be sure you, you trust in me and make it through this narrow gate because most of the nation's going to be heavily pruned. See what I'm saying? So, but once the, old, once they, the remnant passes through into the new creation and the new Jerusalem begins to come down and the old Jerusalem has passed away, the new creation order is different. Jesus says the new creation order is like when leaven goes into bread, it eventually leavens the whole lump. Or like when it's like a mustard seed, it grows and grows and grows. That's why we, we can't take the progress of the gospel in the Old Testament and see how it cyclically goes downhill until apostasy and apply that to today or else we will come up with a negative eschatology and what we need to have is a positive eschatology because we're grafted into Jesus. You see what I'm Well, everything is eschatology, but yes, this is this is eschatology, but this is also psychology and 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 uh, motivation and encouragement, but it's also redemptive history, how it all works. Um, trying to explain that as well. Are y'all? Am I losing everybody? Y'all, y'all? All right. I'm Tori. Who are we? T- who are we talking about? Oh, Israel. I'm I'm terrible at um, deducing what people mean. You, like you should ask my wife. <laughs> okay, but but. Talking about the Jews. Is a remnant. Is is only those who trusted in that rejected block, yeah. and that was a small group of people. Like, no, don't throw him away. We're with him. That was a very small group of people, and they all were hated. Right. Those are the ones who passed through the narrow gate, but they became the seed or the foundation. Twelve, twelve apostles make up the the gates of the new Jerusalem. Jesus is the cornerstone. They became a new temple, and we are being added to that, and it grows to you know massive. So at the end of human time, when John looks into heaven on, on Sunday and sees a worship service, he sees a giant multitude that's so big no one can number it of every nation in the whole world. He doesn't see a tiny little few. He sees a whole world we're basically worshiping and, uh, and around the throne. That's, that's what he sees when he sees up there into heaven and, uh, and sees who all is worshiping at, you know, at the culmination of everything. Yeah, 
several places, but yeah, John 15. Romans 11, yes. I'm about to actually get into all of that. So all this boring stuff that I've laid out. Are y'all asking questions because it's so boring? I'll just quit right now. No. <laughs> All right, I got a few jokes here. Let me get to my joke page. <laughs> Read, rhetorical devices to try. All right. All right, now here we go. Uh, Romans chapter 11, verse 11. Right. <clears throat> Why did God do a dramatic pruning of Israel? This is what Paul says, and I don't totally get it. But this is what he says. This is the answer to the question. Did God reject Israel? No, I'm a Jew. Jesus is a Jew. There's a bunch of us that are Jews, okay? Verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Meaning, has God judged them in this season, back here in in the writing of Romans in the 40s, so that he would completely and utterly get rid of them totally? By no means. Rather... Through their trespass, through their sin of rejecting Jesus, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So in some, in some way, and like I said, I don't exactly understand how this works. It's covenantal, though, in some way. When Israel killed Jesus <clears throat> and rejected uh, him, it, it opened up an opportunity for God to offer the kingdom to all the nations of the world. Okay? Somehow, I don't exactly understand why. And he says, so as to make Israel jealous. Isn't that interesting? Now, if their trespass, that means Israel's trespass, their sin of rejecting the Messiah, means riches for the world. So if, since they rejected Jesus, so all the Gentiles can have riches for the world. Wow, what does the world have in store for it since Israel rejected Jesus? negativity, bad things, spiraling into nothingness with a small group of Christians at the end of time when we all just burn up into a crisp, you know. Is that what he says? No, riches are for the world. That's awesome, isn't it? Since they, since they killed Jesus, the world gets riches. And if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, what do you get? You get riches. Wow. But then look what he says. How much more will their full inclusion mean? which means one day they will be fully included and we will go from riches to how much more? Mega, mega riches. You can see Paul here clearly laying out the trajectory of human history and it goes from Israel's rejection to riches for Gentiles to Israel's inclusion to even more riches for Gentiles, which is another way of saying the whole world will be saved. I'm sure there will be a few stragglers, but there will always be uh, tares among the wheat. But at the end of human history, this world will be a wheat field. It will not be a weed field. In other words, if we switch the metaphor, the vineyard will be abundant and fruitful and will be bearing much fruit, fruit that abides. All right. Let's move on to an, another uh, development of the same thing in Romans 11, verse 17. <clears throat> Paul goes on to make his point. But if some of the branches were broken off... Which branches were broken off in Paul's day? Jewish unbelievers. Okay. And you, who's he talking to? Roman Gentile Christians. Although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others. So you were grafted in among the remnant. 
and now share in the nourishing, what's that word? Root. You're grafted into the remnant as a Gentile, and you get sap from the root, the Abrahamic, Isaac, Jacob promise that's always been going on. Verse 18, therefore, Gentile believers, do not be arrogant toward the branches. Don't, don't be arrogant towards uh, the Jewish people that rejected Jesus. Don't be self-righteous. If you are, and don't be, don't be self-righteous to Jews either. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. So who's the root? It's the Jews, yeah. So, I mean, that's a good point. That's a good point. Don't be arrogant toward them. They support you, right? Now, Romans 11, verse 9. Look at verse 9. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Is that true? Israel was rejected so Gentiles could be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. How do you stay attached to the vine? Faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. What is that a warning of? Don't apostatize. Keep having faith. Because if you do apostatize, you will be cut off from the nourishing root and all the promises of Abraham. But what it does mean by deduction is that there are people who are in the covenant, attached to Abraham, abiding in Christ, but they don't bear fruit and they are cut off. Right? It's, that's, that's the reason why I believe that um, the nature of the new covenant is similar to the nature of the old covenant in that you have elect and unelect in the covenant and that it becomes apparent over time. That's why John says there must be divisions so that those who are genuine might be revealed. That takes 20, 30 years. But over time, you see who, who has the sap of Jesus Christ flowing through them. And those who do not, get, they get not only pruned from the church through church discipline, but they also get pruned out of the covenant blessings. Make sense? <clears throat> so all that being said, we go back to the book of Isaiah. Are the warnings for Israel from Isaiah, can, they, can we use them for us? Yes, because the, because the vineyard is still pruned in the very same way. And are we, the, are we the vineyard? We've been grafted into the root of that vineyard he was talking about. Make sense? All right, any questions? Um, well, because um, losing your salvation would mean that you are elect, predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ, and then God unelects you. That's right. Or you were regenerated by the Holy Spirit, and you were caused to be born again, and now you're not. But once you're born again, you're born again. It's like once you're born. You, know, you can't undo it. 
So, but that does bring up a good point. This particular passage in Romans 11 is very easy for Arminians to deal with. They just say, look, that's people who lose their salvation. Right? But if you don't believe you can lose your salvation, it's not as easy to deal with. But the, way, the only way to deal with it is to understand that you can be in covenant with Jesus and not be elect. That's the only way. To, that, this particular verse is why I began to believe in paedo-baptism. This is the verse that destroyed my entire previous uh, paradigm. And, th- and this comes up all over the Bible. Right? God says, if you remain faithful, I will not blot your name out of the book of life. That's the same thing. Or, or he says, um, in Hebrews, he says, um, be careful if you've been uh, sanctified by the blood of the covenant, lest you fall away. Because it's a, a, a scary thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. He's talking to people in church. He's talking to people in the covenant. Right. And now, if you don't believe that um, someone can be in the covenant that's not elect, then you only, the only solution that I've ever read is they believe this is a hypothetical warning. That it, can't, it won't ever actually happen. It's like when you, uh, when you scare your kid. He's trying to run in the street. And you're like, get back in your house. You know, scream at him and scare the daylights out of him. Or I guess that would be more for a dog or something like that. But you were never actually going to hurt them or do anything. Right? You just are scaring them into perseverance. That's, that is the only other explanation. I don't believe that, though. All right. Any other questions? I, I don't have anything else. What now? Yeah, exactly. It actually does happen. Just like it happened. That's right. Mm-hmm. Good. All right, Jane. Did that? No. Mm-mm. Nothing. Yeah. All right. One more question. <laughs> You grew up Presbyterian. They taught all of this. A lot of layers. <laughs> We've got time. No, I'm trying. <laughs> all right. Yeah, yeah, that's part of it. That's part of it, for sure. All right. Kids, any questions? We have time for one more. Bailey has a question. I thought you did. I saw you take a deep breath. <laughs> Everyone here has committed five more minutes, so let's make the best of it. Let's bear some fruit. All right, well, here's the thing. I didn't cover every single verse in chapter five. If you want, like later on, um, read the rest of the verses. But the, the, what you can do with the rest of the verses, you can see the sins that God rejects people for. And... Uh, and some of them will, will seem very familiar to you. So take a look at that. No, but six is, is, is such a highlight in the Bible that we've got to save it for next week. It's a great highlight. All right, y'all have a good evening. Yeah, you can't zoom over six.